Good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, let's open those up to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27, we're going to be looking at verses 27 to 44 this morning. And when you find that, why don't you go ahead and turn back into the Old Testament to Psalm 22. Matthew 27, verses 27 to 44, and then keep your finger there, and we're going to look at Psalm 22. We're going to look at Psalm 22 first this morning. Let's open up with a word of prayer. Father, we come before you grateful that we have victory in Jesus. Grateful that we can come before you singing your praises, knowing that we, those of us who have faith in Christ, can proclaim victory through the blood, the life, death, and resurrection of, of Jesus. And I pray that as we lift you up this morning and as we open your word this morning that you are glorified through all that we do i pray that uh, this time of worship is honoring to you that we push aside all the distractions of the world lord and we would be mindful of all that you deserve and that we would be willing to give that to you open-handedly this morning we love you it's in your son's name that i pray amen all right so last week we saw Jesus condemned to die by Pontius Pilate as he refused to do what he knew to be right so that he would keep the people of Israel from rioting. All right, this week in our text, Jesus is going to take the place and the punishment of the known murderer and insurrectionist known as Barabbas. Remember, Pilate put Barabbas and Jesus before the people of Israel. He was going to let one of them go, and he let the people of Israel choose which one was going to be released. And the people of Israel chose Barabbas over Jesus. So this week, he's going to be put on the cross, and he's going to die in Barabbas' place. So in verses 27 to 44, we're going to look at a mock coronation. For King Jesus. They're going to mock him as the King of the Jews, and we're going to look at the first half of the crucifixion narrative. All right, it's broken up into two parts, and we're going to look at the first part of that. And one of the things that we'll notice each one of the gospel narratives, so each one of the gospel authors, they come at the crucifixion from a different perspective. Matthew's gospel puts a really heavy emphasis on the spiritual and emotional aspect of all that's going on here for Jesus. You'll notice that much of the brutality that's spoken of uh, is mentioned in the relationship of shame. And Jesus is alone in all of this. The, cru the cruelty itself is really never the point. Right? This is a very cruel punishment that Jesus experiences, especially as someone who the governor himself says is an innocent man. But the cruelty of the punishment itself is never Matthew's point. Matthew's point is the shame that goes with all of what's going on here. The cross is a brutal way to die. And even with that in mind, Matthew just says in the Christian Standard Bible, 
after crucifying him. Right, so you have this insanely, inherently cruel way to murder someone, to execute someone. And Matthew just says, and after crucifying him, and then he chooses to focus on all of the humiliation that surrounds it. So keep that in mind as we go through our text this morning. Keep that in the background as we read through this text. Keep this shame at the, at the back of your mind. And another thing that we need to be mindful of while reading Matthew's narrative is that he's taking great care to ensure that the readers are making the connection between Jesus' death and Psalm 22. At this point, we shouldn't be overly surprised by this. Throughout Matthew's gospel, he's constantly pointed his readers back to the Old Testament to ensure that they are making the connections concerning the prophecies about Jesus as the coming Messiah. And Psalm 22 is a really important prophecy because it is the psalm that predicts the way that the Messiah is going to die long before the Romans perfected crucifixion. They didn't invent crucifixion, but they made it uh, a really cruel way to die. And so long before that was ever even a thing, the psalmist David spoke of crucifixion long before it was ever a thing. So to make sure that we don't miss the points that Matthew was trying to make, I want to read Psalm 22 all the way down to verse 18 before we get into our text in Matthew. All right, I want to make sure that we're all on the same point. So while we're doing that, I've got a, a couple of places that I want you to pay special attention to. All right, so pay special attention to verse 1. That's not going to be as important this week as it is next week. Next week, Jesus is going to quote verse 1 of Psalm 22. Okay, so keep that in your mind. Also, pay special attention to verses 6 through 8 and verses 12 to 18 as these are messianic prophecies that are coming true through the crucifixion of Jesus. So follow along with me as I read Psalm 22. We're going to read down to verse 18. He says, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? My God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. By night, yet I have no rest. But you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Our ancestors trusted in you. They trusted, and you rescued them. They cried to you and were set, for, and were set free. They trusted in you and were not disgraced. But I am a worm, not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by people. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads. He relies on the Lord. Let him save him. Let the Lord rescue him since he takes pleasure in him. It was you who brought me out of the womb, making me secure at my mother's breast. I was given over to you at birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Don't be far from me because distress is near and there's no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong ones of Bashan encircle me. They open their mouths against me, lions mauling and roaring. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are disjointed. My heart is like wax melting within me. My strength is dried up like baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You put me into the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers has closed in on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. 
People look and stare at me. They divided my garments among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. So think about this as we read through our text in Matthew this morning. As we go through our passage in Matthew's gospel, you should be able to see the connection that Matthew is trying to make with this psalm. And one more time, we have Matthew turning on this bright neon light that flashes the word Messiah, Messiah, Messiah over the life of Jesus. All right, he's constantly pointed his Jewish readers back to the Old Testament and wants everyone to understand that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And with this, pointing back to Psalm 22, again, he's saying, Messiah, this is the Messiah. And so with that read and hopefully remembered, we'll get into Matthew 20, 27. And so we're going to start verse 27 and go to 31 to begin with. So it says there, Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the governor's residence and gathered the whole company around him. They stripped him and dressed him in a scarlet robe. They twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and placed the staff in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat on him and took the staff and kept hitting him on the head. After they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe put his own clothes on him, and led him away to crucify him. So at this point, what we're seeing here, Pilate has already had Jesus seriously flogged in hopes of having uh, the people be okay with the punishment that has already been dished out. Pilate does not want to kill Jesus, and so he figures if he just beats him unmercifully, the people would be contented with the punishment that was given and they wouldn't ask for his death. But the religious leaders want Jesus dead. And so at this point, they have convinced the crowd that nothing else will do except Jesus' execution. And so Jesus has been condemned to die by Pilate. So he's going into this having already been flogged unmercifully. And now you have a whole company of Roman soldiers taking him into the residence of the governor. This could have been anywhere from 400 to 600 soldiers. All right, that's what we, when you think of a company, that's how many are in a company. Somewhere between four and 600 soldiers. And what we see next is humanity at its worst. Right, you have an innocent man who has already been condemned to death. But that's not enough for these soldiers. He must also, in their mind, be mocked and tortured before going to the cross. So Jesus is stripped of his own clothing, and someone finds a scarlet robe to put on him, and then they twist together a crown made out of thorns, and they push that down onto his already bloody and beaten head, and then they place a staff into his hand and they kneel down before him and they mockingly cry out, Hail, King of the Jews. And then they spit on him. And they hit him in the head with the staff. This is a sad coronation. 
for Jesus, the true and rightful King of the Jews. These verses are dripping with irony. The soldiers are trying to be cruel in their mockery by calling Jesus the King of the Jews, but what they don't understand is that they are more right in this language. And even though they're being cruel with kneeling down, they have never been more right in their homage to a, to a ruler in their entire life. What occurred to me as I was studying this week is that at some point, these men, these same men that mocked and spat on Jesus, at some point in their existence, they came face to face with Jesus in his glory. Right? Not beaten and bloodied and bruised. Not sitting before them as the promised sacrifice, but as the holy and righteous king. The judge. And then in that moment, they did not kneel in mockery. They knelt in honor and respect and probably terror as they paid homage to the true king of Israel, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, depending on their spiritual condition. We don't know. They may have come to faith in Christ at some point in their life after this moment. So they may have knelt and they may have looked in the face of Jesus and they may have seen their true and rightful king and that might have been the greatest moment of their life. But if they did not come to repentance for their sin, that would have been a terrifying moment for them. But in this moment, Jesus allows them to have the upper hand. He accepts the mockery. He accepts the shame. He accepts their abuse. And He makes His way to the cross according to His Father's will. Which brings us to verse 32. Looking at verse, verse 32 to 37. It says, As they were going out, they found a Cyrenian man named Simon. They forced him to carry his cross. When they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they gave him wine mixed with gall to drink, but when he tasted it, he refused to drink it. After crucifying him, they divided his clothes by casting lots. That should sound familiar. Then they sat down and were guarding him there. Above his head, they put up the charge against him in writing, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And so when the Romans crucified people, they were forced to carry the crossbeam to their place of the execution. No one knows for sure exactly where the site of Golgotha is, but the Romans made sure that these types of executions were public, so they wanted this to be visible. And so wherever Golgotha is, it's going to likely be very close to one of the gates of the city, so it's going to be somewhere nearby. It's going to be somewhere very public. 
And so it's likely on one of the main roads on the way in and out of Jerusalem. All this is done to keep people from rebelling against the government of Rome. All right? They want you to not do the thing that the people being crucified have done. If you do this, this will happen to you. So as Jesus is carrying his crossbeam out, we see that he is truly alone in his death. He's, be, he's been beaten so badly that he can't make it to Golgotha without the help, without help. And so the soldiers turn to a man named Simon to help Jesus carry his crossbeam. And if you remember, there was a once a man named Simon that swore he would be by Jesus' side no matter what happened. No matter if all the rest of the disciples abandoned him and ran away, this Simon swore that he would stand by Jesus' side even if that meant going to his own death. But this Simon is not that Simon. That Simon isn't around. That Simon had a moment of weakness when he saw a threat to his own life. He denied Jesus three times, swore curses on himself at not knowing the man, and he ran away. Jesus is truly alone. And so they had to find some random man from Cyrene to help him carry the cross to his place of execution. And when Jesus arrived, the soldiers attempt to give him a bitter cup of wine as a further insult. And Jesus tastes it, realizes that it's got something bitter in it, or maybe it's poisoned, and he refuses to drink it. They're adding more shame to this brutal, brutal execution. And then Matthew just casually mentions that they crucified Jesus. In crucifixion, the victim is either tied or nailed to the cross beam, and then their feet are either tied or nailed to the vertical beam that holds them up in the air. And once this is done, the cross is hoisted into place, and then the victim is left there. They're left there until they die. And they will either die of exhaustion, exposure, dehydration, or asphyxiation. And usually it's a combination of all of that. And this process could last for days. You, you could be up there for three, four, five, six days, depending on the conditions of, of that time. And because the process is well known, Matthew doesn't give any details about any of that. Instead, he focuses on the shame surrounding the last moment, the last moments of Jesus' life. He says, and they crucified Jesus, and they, divide, they, they cast lots for Jesus' clothes. Right? So the only thing that he owned at that time, they decided to gamble for. That's all that Jesus had. And after putting Jesus on the cross, the soldiers divided his clothes up by casting lots. In our terms, that would be kind of like rolling dice. Right? They would roll the dice. If that dice landed on you, then you would get to keep his garments. 
And this was prophesied about in Psalm 22. The piercing of the hands and the feet. The dividing up of the Messiah's clothes by casting lots. All of this was foretold long before it ever took place. And Matthew points it out to his readers to show them and us all of this shame that Jesus is going through is necessary. He knows how bad all of this looks. Right? This looks really, really bad for the Messiah to be going through all of this. He wants the Jews to understand that this is the plan. Right? This, is, this has not gone off the rails. This is exactly what God has planned from time before time. Okay, So nothing is going off, off base here. The Jews believed that anyone that was hung on a tree was cursed. Right, if you want to look that up, it comes from Deuteronomy 21, verse 23. But Paul says in Galatians 3.13 that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Yes, there is a lot of shame here. But Jesus took that shame so that we would not have to bear it ourselves. Matthew is essentially saying, do not turn your face away from the shame. Do not turn away from the shame. Look at the Messiah. Look him in the eyes as he endures this shame for you and for me. Do not turn away. And then there's more shame as the people come and they begin casting out their insults. Look at verses 38 to 44. Then two criminals were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. Those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him and said, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he takes pleasure in him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, even the criminals who were crucified with him taunted him. These two criminals were likely compatriots of Barabbas. They were likely murderers and insurrectionists just like Barabbas. And so Jesus sitting between these two criminals were likely, he's likely sitting on literally Barabbas's cross. And so you got these guys who are calling out insults to Jesus. You've got the crowds who are calling out insults to Jesus. You have the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes calling out all of these shameful insults to Jesus. And these verses, they show us several things. Number one, another bit of the prophecy in David's psalm came true. Right, Verse 43 is almost a direct quote of verse 8 in Psalm 22. Right, verse 43 is almost a direct quote of Psalm, or verse 8 in Psalm 22. Number two, the people have no idea of what the Messiah actually came to do. And number three, these people have no idea how God's pleasure actually works. All right, of these three things, I want to address the last two. 
All right, we've, we've read Psalm 22 already, so we're going to let that stand for itself. As I said, compare verse 43 to, to verse 8. All right, and you can see how that works out. But that second issue where you've got these, these people, they're yelling out all these insults, and by doing so, they're showing they have no idea why the Messiah came or what he was going to do when he got here. All right. Matthew has gone to a lot of trouble in this gospel to point out where these people have gotten it wrong. Right? That's not to say that he has it right at this point. Right? I mean, where is he right now? I mean, he's one of the disciples. Where is he? He's not there. He's hiding. So he doesn't have it right, right here in this moment. But he's showing that these people don't have it right either. They're completely delusional about what the Messiah came to do. But these people are yelling, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. By saying this, they're showing they do not understand. He's not there to save himself. That's not why he came. The whole reason he is on the cross is to save those who would see their sin, repent of their sin, and put their faith in him. That's why he's on the cross. He is in the process of destroying the temple, meaning his body, through his crucifixion, and in three days, that temple, his body, is going to be rebuilt. So after his death on the cross, he's going to be buried in a borrowed tomb, also a prophesied thing that will come true. He will stay there for three days, and on the third day, he's going to rise from the grave, showing that his sacrifice was acceptable before God the Father, and sin and death will be defeated, and the temple of God will be restored. These people are speaking about things they do not understand. After that, You've got the chief priests and the scribes they, and the elders. They say he saved others, but he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. These guys are a hot mess. I mean, if they understood the Old Testament even half as much as they thought they did, they would realize that the king of Israel needed to go up on the cross in order to be the Messiah. And here again, we see them looking, just one more sign. Show me one more sign, just one more thing, Jesus. Just one. Show us a sign of your authority. They said, come down from the cross and then we'll believe. The problem is, if Jesus came down from the cross, there would be nothing to believe in. Jesus' death on the cross is the fulfillment of the new covenant, which is the forgiveness of sins. No cross, no new covenant. No blood, no forgiveness. No ransom, no salvation. There's no fulfillment of Scripture. Jesus paid the debt that we owed on the cross. He paid the wrath for the wrath of God so that we wouldn't have to. In the instant that Jesus came down so that these people would supposedly believe, He would negate everything that they would have to believe in. They have no clue. 
And truthfully, they wouldn't believe anyway. I mean, if there were anyone in the world at any time that lived in a privileged position, it was these guys. Right? If it were, if, if one more Bible study were all it would take for someone to come to faith, right? Everybody says, I just need to know more about the Bible. Or if I could just see Jesus, if I could just have lived during Jesus' time, maybe then I would come to faith. Or if I could just see Jesus do a miracle, then I would come to faith in Jesus. All of these men, if any of that was true, would have been believers. They've seen the signs. They saw Jesus in the flesh. They've heard him teach. They know the scriptures that point to Jesus as the Messiah, and yet they still had him killed. If Jesus comes down from the cross, they're going to spit in his face and do whatever they can to put him back up there. The last thing they say in verse 33 Verse 43 shows that the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders have no idea how God's pleasure works. They have no clue. These experts in the law, these experts in the Old Testament, in the scriptures. At the end of in verse 43, they say, He trusts in God, let God rescue him now. If he takes pleasure in him, for he said, I am the Son of God. So in their mind, the fact that Jesus is up on the cross proves that God is displeased with him, which is so far from the truth. Twice in Matthew's gospel, God the Father has spoken of just how pleased he is with his son. Right? The first time was at his baptism. This is my son in whom I am, what? Well pleased. The second time is at his transfiguration. Right? when Peter, James, and John got to see him in his transfigured glory. And he says, this is my son in whom I am what? Well pleased. So make no mistake, God the Father is well pleased with the son. All that is happening now has nothing to do with how the father feels about the son. The son has been completely obedient to the will, to the will of the father. God is well pleased with the Son. But Isaiah 53 also says that the Father is pleased to crush him severely. Isaiah 53, verses 7 to 12 says this. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter. And like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with a rich man at his death because he had done no violence and not, had not spoken deceitfully. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed, he will prolong his days, and by his hand the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see light and be justified, or satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as spoil, because he will willingly, 
because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels, yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. God was pleased to crush Jesus because it meant that rebels could be redeemed. Jesus wasn't in the position that he was in because God was displeased with him. Jesus was fulfilling everything that the Father asked him to do. The Father was well pleased with the Son. And yet Jesus was still afflicted. Isaiah 53, 5 says, but he was pierced because of our rebellion. Crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, but we are healed by his wounds. That's right, amen. So how does this apply to us? Some of it should be really obvious, I would hope. First off, obviously, if we are not Christians here in this place, listening online, we need to understand that everything that Jesus suffered, the physical pain, the shame, the wrath of God, was all done so that our rebellion could be covered by his blood. And that if we will repent of our sin, God is faithful to forgive, and then we can follow him in salvation for the rest of our life. So that is the first application. That is the greatest application. The second application is if we are believers here today, we should not mistake our sufferings as acts of divine judgment. All right, Romans 8.1 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If there is no condemnation, that means that God is pleased with us. All right? That God is pleased with us. He's pleased with us because of what Christ did for us on the cross. When he looks at us, he sees Jesus. Remember, God is pleased with Jesus. Does that mean that there will be no more suffering? Unfortunately, no. It does not mean that there will be no more suffering. God does not always protect us from the consequences of our actions. Some, and he doesn't always protect us from the actions of the consequences of the actions of other people. All right, so sometimes we will experience suffering. Sometimes in God's wisdom, in his sovereign wisdom, our suffering works for our good or for the good of someone else. And we may not understand that. But Romans 8, 28 through 30 say that all things work together for the good of those who love God because it conforms us into the image of Jesus. Right, so sometimes that suffering, whether we understand it or not, is for our good. So we should not assume that just because God loves us, that our suffering will immediately be removed. 
right? Sometimes people who have a misunderstanding of who God is misunderstand our suffering, right? Jesus suffered immensely, and yet he was well-loved and well-pleased by the Father. So if you're here today and you are suffering, don't think it is because God is displeased with you. It may well be because you've made some mistakes and you are suffering from the consequences of your mistakes. Right? That happens. But it is not God's judgment on your life if you are a follower of Christ. I cannot make that promise for you if you are here today and you are not a believer in Christ. Right? You are standing condemned in your sins. You are standing under the right judgment of God. And if you die today or if he comes back, you will stand in his wrath for the rest of eternity. But know today that Jesus went to the cross for you so that you would not have to. You would not have to suffer the shame that you deserve for your rebellion. So my prayer today is that you would keep that in mind. Whether you're going through the greatest time of your life or whether you are suffering, you would remember that Jesus is on this cross right now, halfway through his crucifixion for you. With you in mind, as he suffers and dies, to take God's wrath for you. Let's pray together. Father, I'm humbled I'm humbled by the reality that Jesus would endure so much pain and sorrow and shame for someone who is so prone to sin as I am but I thank you I thank you for the cross. I thank you for the new covenant in his blood. I thank you for the ransom that he paid. Lord, I pray that I would never be confused by the suffering that may happen in my life. Help me to push away any lies that may make me think that you were displeased with me or that you love me any less because of hardship. Because when you look at me, you see Jesus. God, for the people in this church, I pray that the Holy Spirit would bring this very same truth to mind every day of their life. 
the reality of the cross would help them to live free. Free of guilt and shame. Free of fear of punishment so that they can come to you in repentance for any and all sin that they may commit. Lord, that the reality of the cross would mean that this church can be open and honest with all of our failings with each other. The cross has outed us as sinful people. No one in here is perfect. And you have made us a body that needs one another and so we need to be open and honest and truthful together. So Lord, help us to be people who are willing to be vulnerable all because of what Jesus did on the cross. Lord, help us to see all that you've done for us correctly. Open our eyes to the truth and Lord, if there's anybody here that is not a believer, Lord, I pray that today is the day that they would see their need for, for Jesus. That the realities of the cross would become an ultimate reality and that salvation would be a thing that they would grasp for today. Lord, I ask all this in your son's precious name. Amen.